So we're starting a new sermon series today. It's called Family Discipleship. It's really just about discipleship. So if you're here and you don't have kids or your kids are all grown or you don't like kids, that's okay. Um, today's sermon is uh, just called The Next Generation. And in 1967, this is a famous quote. I didn't make it up. This is from Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan said this. He said, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream and must be fought for, protected, handed on for them to do the same. Or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. Now, the truth of this statement feels a little almost prophetic in today's day and age, but that's not the point of my sermon. The point is that it only takes one generation to forget or reject the principles and ideals that we once held. Now, of course, Ronald Reagan didn't invent this concept. The Bible is actually littered with this same idea, and you can see it throughout the scriptures, beginning in the Torah, those first five books of the Bible. The point is this, whether it is political in nature or biblical in nature, whether it's ethical, these things need to be taught they need to be promoted. They need to be passed on to the next generation. Because if they are not, there will be very little hope of continuing life the way that it was. And so for our purposes, rather than saying freedom is only one generation away from extinction, we can say this. Apostasy is only one generation away. A complete turning away from the biblical faith is really always only one generation away. That in some ways, it can feel like a slow fade, but in other ways, it can feel like falling off a cliff and then looking back and saying, what on earth happened? Perhaps you've seen these truths in your own lives. You grew up in the church, you tried to do your part, and now you see your own children falling away, completely disinterested. Maybe they haven't been interested and you're older now and you're wondering if they'll ever change their mind you wonder what will happen to your grandkids to your great-grandkids perhaps you look at our nation and you think what is our hope well today this sermon series that we're starting on family discipleship we really want to deal with some of these issues of the next generation and so i want to give some guidelines up front um, just to set the, set the kind of the, the pace for this uh, sermon series. One, we're not going to beat you up, all right? That's not the point of the sermon series. We're not going to beat you up. You don't need to feel worse as a parent, okay? You don't need to feel worse as a disciple maker. We are all there. We all get that. We make mistakes. And as uh, Steve, one of our elders, often will say, God was the perfect parent, and look at his, how his children turned out, okay? And so just remember that even with the perfect parenting style, you cannot guarantee your child's walk with the Lord, okay? And so we're not here to beat you up. Two, we are going to provide you with equipping that is relevant even if you don't have kids, okay? So the Bible uses the framework of family to describe discipleship, but that is, the, that is only to help us understand something that is common to everybody. So in the New Testament, we're called the family of God. 
And, but me discipling my daughters is just as much an aspect of discipleship as if one of the young women in the church were investing in them because we are all a family of God, okay? And so just because we're talking about family discipleship, don't limit it to the nuclear family because that's not how it should be viewed. All right, the third thing is this. We must reclaim the definition of disciple-making to be more than just evangelism, okay? We must reclaim the definition of disciple-making to be more than just evangelism. If disciple-making is only evangelism, then having a child is only the birth, okay? But we know that that's not the case. We know that having children means the whole process from beginning to end. Paul said that it was about raising them, helping them grow up to maturity. That's why he said in Colossians chapter 1, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works through me. And so we're not here to beat you up. Um, the second thing is that we really want to provide you with relevant principles that will help you in your disciple making, whether that's with your kids, whether it's with your siblings, whether it's with your coworkers or your neighbors. And the third thing is we want to realize that disciple making is more than just sharing the gospel. Disciple making is the whole process of becoming more like Jesus from the sharing of the gospel through maturity until we really are restored fully. And, and we're with Jesus in glory. And so today, this is what I want you to focus on. This is what I'm going to focus on. I want to get this idea tucked into our hearts and minds, okay? And this is, the, this is kind of the big idea. Our focus must shift to the next generation or the last generation, not my generation. Okay, we need to have a mental shift I don't care how old you are. Some of you guys are in your, on your early 20s. That's fine. We need to have a mental shift where we stop thinking about my generation and we start thinking about the next generation or which might be the last generation. For all we know, we don't know. So we are constantly thinking towards the next generation. You know, in the book of Judges, we see how rapidly, Judges in the Old Testament, by the way, and in the book of Judges, we see how rapidly people turn from their previous principles and their previous convictions. So during the years of conquest, that was when Israel was at war with the Canaanites, Israel, quote, served the Lord all the days of Joshua, who was Moses' successor, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. But once this generation passed away, quote, Judges 2.10, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, and they did not know the work which he had done to Israel. Okay, we just kind of read those things. I want you to really let that sink in for a second. I want you to let the insanity of that sink into your heart. Moses leads them on Exodus. The fighting generation, because they disobeyed, they die in the wilderness. And everybody who wasn't of fighting age grows up. That generation who saw the parting of the Red Sea, who saw the striking of the rock, 
who saw being fed by manna for 40 years, having their clothes not wear out for 40 years, who saw the conquest, who saw the sun stand still, who saw the defeat of the remaining Rephaim and Anakim, the remaining giants in the land, who saw all of that, they did not tell their kids what they saw. That's what that means. So another generation came who did not know the Lord and were unacquainted with the works of the Lord. This is very likely the next generation following the conquest. These are children and grandchildren of Moses. These are the children and grandchildren of the supposed pillars of the faith that we read about in the Torah. And the fact that they did not know the Lord, which is the quote, or the miraculous events that God had performed on their behalf is quite honestly a sad commentary on their lack of, you could say biblical education, but you know what I mean, an intentional discipleship. And so their parents, their grandparents, and their community failed to pass on these stories. They failed to explain that each of the feasts and festivals that were given to them were not simply um, aspects for religiosity where you just go and perform it, but each of those festivals was designed to point towards a biblical truth related to either uh, related to their past and then what God was going to do in their future. And so all of the spiritual meaning that was embedded in their festivals was essentially completely eviscerated, disemboweled. And so God was forgotten. Now, if you read these stories from the Old Testament, you realize that Joshua and his contemporaries were amazing men who did awesome deeds. I mean, these guys would make Rambo blush, but they had failed to teach the next generation to love the Lord their God. They failed to teach the next generation the lessons of God's providence, the lessons of God's protection, the lesson, lessons of God's um, provision, his covenantal promises that the people had made to follow the Lord their God under threat of cursing and blessing at the end of Deuteronomy. And were we to study the book of Judges, we would see that Israel's abandonment of God and his principles in just one generation ushered in a great period of trial and persecution and cycles of oppression. Because the bottom line is you reap what you sow. And so as they abandoned all that was held dear to the Lord, they began to reap all of that in their lives. And then they would be subjected essentially to passive wrath. And so herein lies the warning for us. If we fail to teach biblical truth to our children and our grandchildren, that could very well happen right here in our nation, in our community, in our family, and at our church. Quite honestly, I think it's what is happening. The Christian ethos that was intertwined on some level, I know we can argue about that, but on some level, the, cre the Christian mindset that was intertwined with the origin of our nation is disappearing like dew under a hot sun. Personally, I think that we've already passed the tipping point, but that doesn't mean that we should stop trying to develop the next generation. 
We need to fight for the next generation. It does not mean that we should simply throw our kids to the wolves and say, well, it's too late. That's just the way our culture is now. If anything, it means that we should be more intentional, more purposeful with our kids. And so that's the warning. And so the first thing, the next thing I want to talk about is a change in perspective. This is what we need, a change in perspective. If you read, and we're not going to read it because it's multiple chapters long, but if you were going to read 2 Kings chapters 18 to 21, you read another story of a generation failing to pass on truth. I'm just going to read selections from that um, section of scripture. 2 Kings 18, 1 to 7. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Allah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, uh, that's David's his ancestor, in other words, had done. He removed the high places. That's where they worshiped pagans. And he broke the pillars. Again, idol worship. He cut down the Asherah poles. They had these poles where they would go and worship Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel were making offerings to it. And he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was more, none like him among all the kings of Judah after him nor among those who were before him. So this is like a really good epitaph, right? And so if you're a king in Israel and, and this is the Bible's description of you, this is a really good track record, like vigilant against idolatry, fought for the Lord, never a king like you before or after you. He trusted in the Lord for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses, and the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria. He even like stuck to his guns when the king of Assyria showed up at his foot, at his doorstep. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. This is a good description of Hezekiah, this king. He was a good king. And he wasn't a good king who just had all like green pastures. He was a good king in the midst of difficult times. Matter of fact, he saw some serious trials. The Assyrian king, his name was Sennacherib, he attacked Judah with an army of in excess of 150,000 people, closer to 200,000 people or more. And basically he comes up to the wall and they have their little spokesman, like the dude from the return of the king with all the teeth. And he comes up and he's just trying to make all of the hearts of the Israelites just melt in fear. And he's speaking in their own language. And I'm not joking. He tells them that they're going to die. They're going to have to eat their own feces. They're going to drink their own urine. They're going to eat their kids because this is what Assyria is going to do to them. And he's saying all of this gnarly stuff. And the guy on the wall is literally like, hey, can you do me a solid? And let's talk in Assyrian and don't talk in Hebrew because <laughs> I don't want my people to hear this. And he keeps talking in Hebrew. And so imagine that, that you're this small little Judah and there's 200,000 soldiers outside of your walls and they're itching for blood. 
And Hezekiah, he goes into the temple and he calls out to God. He says, God, what are you going to do? God, what are we going to do? And God hears his prayer. And he assures him that he will take care of it. So Hezekiah goes to bed. And this is what we read in 2 Kings 19, 35 to 37. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 soldiers in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, 185,000 dead bodies around them. Then Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed. Good idea, bro. And he went home, and he lived at Nineveh. And one day, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his his god, Adremelech and Sherarazar, his sons, struck him down with his sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Asharhadon, his son, reigned in his place. So all that God said to Hezekiah, he's like, look, I'm going to take care of this. That happened. So that's a pretty sweet miracle, right? I mean, it's a, it's a nasty cleanup process, but it's a pretty sweet miracle if you're King Hezekiah to see these things. I mean, that's an amazing story. Another Hezekiah story, he gets really sick, and basically God tells him he's going to die. And it says Hezekiah is lying on his couch, and he's facing the wall, and he's throwing himself a little pity party, and he cries, and he says, God, would you make me live longer? And God shows up, and he says, yeah. I'm going to add 15 years to your life. I'm going to give you even more time. You're still a young guy. You still want to see your kids grow up. You want to see your grandkids, all that kind of stuff. And then shortly after that, another problem arises because there's this new nation on the block who's really not a new nation. They have a nation who's been around a long time, but now they're getting power again. Their name is Babylon. And they show up, and they're just like, hey, we're just visiting. We're just saying hi, new neighbors, right? (laughs) And... um, and so Hezekiah's like, come on in. And he's giving him the tour of the kingdom. And he's showing him, he's like, this is, it's like MTV Cribs, you know, he's going around. This is the theater room over here. This is the storehouses where we keep all of our supplies. You, can we see the treasury? Sure, bro. And he goes, he opens up the treasury and shows them all the, this is all my bronze spears, got these bronze shields. This stuff is cool. And they're like, thanks for showing us your stuff. You got a sweet place. And they leave. And then God says to Hezekiah, what are you doing? This same nation which you are showing all of your greatness to is going to crush you. And they're going to be the end of Israel. And God rebukes him for his foolishness. He tells him that his actions are really looking forward to a downfall because Babylon's going to come through. They're going to kill everyone. His kids and grandkids will be eunuchs. Parents, you can explain that. They'll be tortured. But none of this will happen while Hezekiah is alive. And here's the key verse. I know it's a lot of backstory. Here's the key verse. 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 19. All right? I have to do like a dramatic pause so people pay attention. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, Isaiah is the prophet who's relaying all the, sorry guys, just get excited about Assyrians. And... 2 Kings 20:19. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the king's response, the word of the Lord that you've spoken is good. For he thought, why not? 
if there's going to be peace and security in my day, hold that thought. Think about what Hezekiah just said. God comes in, says to Isaiah, you tell Hezekiah his kids are going to get killed, his grandkids are going to get killed, those who don't die are going to become eunuchs, the entire nation is going to get crushed. And Hezekiah's response is, I, I mean, I'm not going to be here anymore, right? Okay, that's fine then. So Hezekiah dies, his son takes over, his son's name is Manasseh. Manasseh. Let me read to you about this top quality guy. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. By the way, if Hezekiah hadn't prayed for a longer 15 years of life, guess who never would have been born? I don't know if there's something there or not. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. It's quite a name. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before them in the conquest. He rebuilt the high places that his father had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah pole, as King Ahab of Israel had done. And he worshipped all of the host of heaven, and he served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord. So now he's building idol altars inside the temple of which the Lord God had said, in Jerusalem alone will I put my name, Deuteronomy 12, 5. And he built altars for all of the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the temple. And he burned his son as an offering. And he used fortune tellers and omens. And he dealt with mediums, psychics, and necromancers. He did much evil. Necromancer are people who try to raise from the dead so they can do seances, that kind of stuff. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord. By the way, in other words, God's serious against that stuff. All right? It's not just like some cool thing you do in West Cape May. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Ashura that he had made, he set in the temple which the Lord had said to David and his son Solomon in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander out the land that I gave their fathers. If only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them. And according to the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But, They did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before them. Okay? So you have to remember, if you go back to Genesis, God said to Abraham, your people are going to be oppressed for 400 years because the sin of the Canaanites is not yet complete. Okay? The primary, there's lots of sins of the Canaanites, but you could make a very strong biblical argument that the main sin of the Canaanites that really disgusted God was child sacrifice. Killing their children so they could have something, a blessed harvest, an easier way of life, sacrificing their kids. Connect the dots, okay? And he says, you did more evil than the nations before you. And the Lord then said, by his servants, the prophets, 
Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations, and he's done more evil than the Amorites who were before him, and has made Judah sin with idols, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hear it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil because they have done what is evil in my sight. And they have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. So from Judges to now, before Judges. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. And besides that, besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, so that they also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. How does that happen? How do you go from King Hezekiah to King Manasseh? He was the best king to the worst king. Goes from the best king ever to the king who causes the exile. The straw that broke the camel's back. Of course, it wasn't him alone. It was generations. Well, we go back to verse 19. Why not, if there will be peace and security in my day? Do we truly not care what will happen to our kids and our grandkids as long as I am dead and out of the picture? Worked for me. Let's hope it works out for you. The reality is that we need a massive paradigm shift in the way that we are thinking about our lives. Psalm 71, 17 to 19 says this, O oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation. Your power to all those to come. So in David's perspective, when is it okay for him to die? When he's done having fun? When what? When he's done doing his job. Maybe if Manasseh had focused on doing his job instead of extending his life, his nitwit son wouldn't have been born. He focused on doing his job. David fulfilled the works of God for him in his generation. That's what it says in Acts chapter 13. He continues, your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You have done great things, God. Who is like you? If you think about your life, and I say this, I know it's true about you because it's true about me. If you think about your life, much of your dreaming and planning is about you. It's about you. What do you want to do? What do you want to see? What do you want to make sure you accomplish before you die? What are the things that you hope to be a part of? 
it isn't primarily. Now, I believe that as people age, they understand this more and more. So maybe the older you are, the more you say, no, I get what you're saying, Bill. But for the most part, for most people, it isn't about what's best for your kids. It isn't about what's best for your niece. It's not about what's best for your nephew. It's not about what's best for your neighborhood. It's not about what's best for the church of God, for the local church that you're part of if you're on vacation or the world. Most of our dreams and aspirations are about me. And if we think about our kids, we think about the money we'll leave to our kids and the way they're going to get a head start on life but maybe we don't think primarily about have we equipped the next generation to run the race in case they are the last generation. What if we stopped being a people who just always were talking about my generation and we started being a people who primarily think about the next generation? Because there will be a last generation. And they will have to be far better equipped than any of us ever were. And we do a great disservice to the next generation if we live our lives selfishly for all of the crap and garbage that we care about that will be burned up in a moment's notice. But it was fun while it lasted, so good luck. Like King Hezekiah. If the next generation is the last generation, will we have done our job to equip them to run well? Or will we have provided them with all of the toys and creature features they could possibly want, but have basically set them up to fail because we cared more about a temporary occasion of the flesh than the glory of Christ spread into every nook and cranny of our state and our world? We need to start, stop thinking about my generation and start thinking about the next. We need to gear our lives towards pouring into others and not just thinking about myself. We need to embrace the attitude of Christ that we see described in Philippians chapter 2 when Paul writes, Let each of you look not to your own interests only, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped or leveraged, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him, highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Jesus met us where we were to bring us to where we need to be. And the question is, will we do the same for the next generation? I would say in the last six months, I've probably had upwards of two dozen Zoom calls with pastors from all over the country, most, of, most in like the tri-state area, who are asking this question. How do I transition my church to a discipleship-oriented church? 
because they've realized that they have not equipped the next generation to run the race, but they had a great Sunday service. And when they die, it just pops the balloon. We don't want to be those kinds of people. And so today's challenge is this. I'm just going to give you one simple incremental challenge for the week, okay? Today's challenge is this. Start praying for the next generation every day. That's all I'm asking you to start with. I know firsthand how easy it is to be so busy, you wonder if you've really labored in prayer over your kids. Okay? I get it. It's easy to just kind of toss one up because you're busy. Let's start praying. That's your basic, simple homework. Start praying over the next generation. This series is going to be about giving you basic principles to help with pouring into the next generation. But start there by praying for the next generation. Create a prayer calendar for your kids, your grandkids, your relatives, the students that revolve, people you know, people who God, but you don't have to make an exhaustive list. Ask God, God, who, who do you want me to be praying for on a regular basis? Or who do you want me to be praying for today if you're disciplined to ask that question? And then we're going to give you some time to do that at the end of this sermon. And I want to encourage you, this isn't just for moms and dads, okay? We're all like the young women in here. You guys are like in this general vicinity. <laughs> young women, do you think my daughter's going to want to talk with me about her issues when she's a teenager? You have invaluable experience. Older generation, I know you did your time. I, and I hear people say that kind of stuff. I did my time. We know you did your time. We were there for it. But pour into parents who are struggling. When you see a marriage that's struggling, rather than hiding behind the shame of your previous failures, maybe pull aside a couple and help them grow through their struggles. We went through the things that we went through so we can pour into others so that they can be comforted. God comforts us in our discomfort so that we can comfort others with the comfort that we have received. If we truly are a family, then we pour into people out of a place of being ministered to in the past. And so we need to start acting like a family. Now, the nuclear family is great. I think we should protect it. But in Christ, this is the nuclear family. It's not just what's in your home. And so we need to really take ownership over one another. This is what I want you to do. I want you to spend the next couple minutes, next two, three minutes, and I want you to ask God, if you need to write it on your phone, write on a piece of paper, I want you to ask God, God, put just five people on my heart from the next generation. Five people. If you're young, you're here, you're a teenager, ask God to put five friends on your heart. If you're younger than that, you're single digits, ask God to put five friends on your heart. All right? But make that list now and commit to praying over it. So just be silent for a few minutes as you ask God, in whom am I supposed to be investing? Who's the next generation for you? And then I'll pull us back together in a couple minutes.